including the originally largely handwritten manuscript for Capricornia, which you'll be able to view next door at lunchtime. We also have a series of let letters written by Herbert to various friends and lovers about serious and light-hearted subjects. Those written to close friend Arthur Dibley often touch on Herbert's concerns about the treatment of Indigenous Australians, which of course we will see writ large in his published stories. Our keynote speaker this morning is Dr Janine Lane from the Australian National University. Janine has completed her doctorate in literature and Aboriginal representation after a long career teaching at secondary and tertiary levels. She has been a research fellow at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, has completed a postdoctoral fellowship at ANU, and is currently a research fellow at the Australian Centre for Indigenous History, also at the ANU. Her 2010 volume of poetry, Dark Secrets After Dreaming, AD 1887 to 1961, won the Scanlon Prize for Indigenous Poetry, and her manuscript, Purple Threads, won the David Unapian Award at the Queensland Premier's Literary Awards, and was shortlisted for both the 2012 Commonwealth Book Prize and the Victorian Premier's Literature Awards. Please welcome Janine. Thank you. Thank you for coming out today. And um, I'd also like to acknowledge um, the Ngunnawal people whose land we're gathered on today and for my privilege of earning my living here on Ngunnawal country and also acknowledge Wiradjuri people who are my ancestors. Thanks. Now, it's not very often actually I get to talk about Xavier Herbert really though um, or teach in a long career of teaching, I've really only been taught, you know, two of his books because I was a specialist in Australian literature, and but you had to sort of seek them out. And I can't say I've ever really been called on to teach his works too much either. Um, so it's interesting. Why? So... So Xavier Herbert, for me, is probably one of the most um, interesting and least talked about Australian authors. And he's just one of the many settler authors whose mind was preoccupied by Aboriginal Australians. In fact, it's arguable that his two greatest novels, um, Capricornia, 1938, and Poor Fellow My Country, uh, published in 1973, but with a very long gestation time, um, couldn't have been written without ab Aboriginal people as um, subject matter. So then what is the difference between Herbert, or is there a difference between Herbert and the long string of other authors who used Aboriginal Australians to express themselves and their concerns at the time of what they thought and what they thought were the concerns of the nation? But before I get on to that, I just want to spend a minute... Um, deconstructing some of the problematic terminology that um, I'm confined to use um, and used in the opening, um, in particular terms that the author uses that I'll refer to, half-caste, full-blood, uh, terms that you hopefully don't hear anymore. And, but in particular, um, I use the term um, subject matter. And I believe that some of the terms that, this, that the author uses and that I'm going to talk about 
uh, are important to use because at the time I think they begin to express what is a great Australian failure not just for Herbert's works, but for many works in the settler literary canon that grapple with what they, on the one hand, um, attempt to represent as the Aboriginal problem. So Aboriginal people, as the subjects in Australian uh, literature, are vast, and this is not usually questioned um, for why they are there or why Aboriginal people are used as subjects in Australian um, literature. Attention focuses largely around what what each particular picture says at, at each particular time. And Herbert's is, is an enigmatic and problematic one. But the subject position is very important here. Um, the colonial subject. A people can mean two things, and for Aboriginal people, I guess, both. Um, a people under dominion rule and a people as an object or a scene or something chosen by an artist for representation as a literary subject. And so Aboriginal people are both the subject of a regime and the subject of the literary imagination. And Aboriginal people are probably occupy at this time the ultimate kind of subject-object position in both colonial Australia um, pre-1901 and the nation post because we're excluded and marginalised under the sovereign dominion, but interestingly enough, overrepresented in Australian colonial and national literature. So from the late 18th and 19th centuries and the second half of the 20th century, um, Aboriginal people were quite present in the national landscape through an abundance of perhaps footage, um, historical, anthropological, archaeological discourses, um, <clears throat> artistic representations and literary representations. And amidst this <clears throat> abundance of images, it's interesting, but there's an absence of voice. There's a silence. The subject matter, the Aboriginal people don't speak. Um, we're spoken for or spoken through. So um, I am not entirely cynical about authors such as Herbert who tell an Aboriginal story. There could be some sense or some cause for cynicism to the extent that a number of Australian authors, settler authors, openly admitted that Aboriginal people, Aborigines, made good subjects for stories. For example, Catherine Pritchard wrote Coonadu after she visited a friend on a cattle station in the Kimberleys and witnessed a corroboree and later expressed to her friend and fellow author, Vance Palmer, that what she saw was dramatic and thrilling and could be produced largely for foreign or southern audiences. Patrick White, likewise, was inspired by the journals of explorers' encounters with Aborigines in the interior for Boss and for a fringe of leaves inspired by Eliza Fraser's journals. But on the other hand, though, I appreciate, for the large part, these writers um, couldn't imagine an Australia or even someone writing in Australia in the second half of the century, like White sorry, or Herbert, couldn't imagine an Australia where Aboriginal people are writing as we are now. So on that, I, I, it's easy to be cynical about their representations in retrospect. But I think that particularly with Herbert's work, it represents a great failure of, he's representing a great failure of an imagination of a nation that he sees is not going to come to fruition. So such writers as Herbert 
couldn't imagine a future other than that which is bleak and incomplete or a limbo or purgatorial existence for both black and white Australians. So writers such as Herbert, though, although I have said he's underread and undertaught and underdiscussed, still are considered as natu- na- sorry, national writers. Um, I've heard his book described as a great classic or the great Australian story. Um, Stella Miles Franklin, um, who we all know was a cultural nationalist, um, and the award named in her honour since its establishment in 1957 reflects this as well, this type of cultural nationalism nationalism and with only probably three or so exceptions these being the Noongar writer Kim Scott who won the Miles Franklin in 1999 for Banang and 2011 for that Dead Man Dance and one year writer Alexis Wright whose wonderfully vast narrative Carpentaria opens with the lines a nation chance but we know your story already Um, won the award in 2007, most of the winners chosen for the Miles Franklin Award tend to reinforce rather than challenge some notion of Australianness or phases of Australian life. So, and following the 40th century of the, uh, sorry, 40th anniversary of the Miles Franklin Award in 1997, literary scholar Patrick Allington pointed out that most of the winning books could fall into three quite broad themes. And the first of these are great comings and goings, leaving Australia and coming back. And in doing so, realising what a great place Australia is. I'm thinking, for example, of Jessica Anderson here, Patrick White, David Malouf. Great journeys away from Australia that lament Australia. Um, or this, that's, So that's the first one. The second one is Australia at War. And once again, David Malouf, Christopher Koch... Um, but noticeably only overseas wars, and it takes until Kim Scott or Alexis Wright before any kind of frontier or civil war or cultural genocide gets a mention in this um, body of works that's awarded the Miles Franklin Award. It's mostly talking about wars, nationalistic wars, like the First or the Second World War. Um, Or that modern life is hell, or modern life is somehow problematic. And this has shifted these kind of the, the works that fall within this theme. They've, it's shifted a bit, perhaps, in the last 10, 15 years. In particular, I mentioned two Aboriginal writers. But before that, I tend to agree with Petrick that the overall, overall the Miles Franklin canon was confined to the, those themes. And to some extent, Herbert still falls within these, these three broad themes, although there is an extent to which he pushes the boundaries of those themes. Um, for example, he is less concerned with comings and goings in his work, although between Carpentaria, sorry, Capricornia and Poor Fellow in My Country, there are comings and goings, between, but not between Europe or Britain, like the other Miles Franklin award-winning works um, exhibit or have, are examples of, but comings and goings between Southeast Asia, between Indonesia, between places that are close to Australia. So he's exploring a different geographical sphere in terms of Australian positioning there. Um, And he's talking about a lot of comings, like comings of the settler and stayings too, rather than goings. War, definitely, not so much perhaps the war itself, but he's definitely very thrown, very concerned by post-war changes. Um, 
and after that he's noted to say that Australia became bourgeois after the Second World War and he was very uh, disillusioned. Um, but definitely, yes, on modern life, the, the second point leads to the third one. And yes, on modern life is hell. Um, that's probably the one that his work most complies with because he does grapple with changes and he grapples in a way that I think is quite pessimistic. Um, but Miles Franklin said something, though, that is of interest or always of interest to me. Um, and then she said, without an Indigenous, with a lowercase i, without an Indigenous literature, people can remain alien in their own soil. So I think she's right about that. Um, creating an identity and a, lit a literature of place is an important facet of shaping a socio-cultural landscape. However, Miles Franklin, like Herbert and like, like uh, Percival Stevenson, and other notable literary critics and essayists at the time, they could only imagine this new nation as a commonwealth, as a loyal exile of Britain, as a sort of isolated socialist utopia with a small population. But the Second World War changed that, those kind of aims. And Stevenson, for example, said in 1935, a new nation, meaning Australia, a new human type is being formed in Australia. Culture in Australia, if it ever develops indigenously with a small eye, begins not from the Aborigines who have been suppressed and exterminated, but from the British culture. And I think that Stevenson et al. express a belief at the time, that was held at the time. They're no more or less perhaps racist than any other author mentioned. Um, they are a product of this national belief. They're a product of the passing of the Aborigine and Herbert comes in on the tail end of that, that national, national belief. Um, so, um, yeah, the passing of the Aborigine or I think the passing of the Aborigine as we were perceived in the national imagination or trapped in the literary imagination of national writers. And national writers get by like the nation itself, really, by creating and recreating an imagined state. Um, like all modern nations, they're the product of some sort of collective imagination uh, of a group of citizens. And Herbert begins to grapple with the national picture, particularly by the time he comes to write Poor Fellow, My Country. Um, Carpentaria, perhaps, uh, Capricornia, begins with more hope, I think. But, um, yeah, he grapples with the national picture. Um, and, um, and in doing this, he, um, has, he expresses an, a huge amount of lament. Um, and he laments the promises of something unfulfilled. And my understanding of 20th century Australian history is that not that it's a question of whether you were a nationalist, it's more of a question of what kind of nationalist you were. And the years between 1945 and 1975, Capricornia had been completed by then. Um, poor fellow, my country just published and was being written during these, these post-war changes, were difficult ones. So between 1945 and 1975, the, the debate around Australian nationalism was a difficult one for both conservative and radical camps. 
um, and the isolationist tradition of radical nationalism began to crumble after World War II. And the white Australia policy that Manning-Clark described as a giant act of protection became more and more unsustainable as massive immigration from Italy, Greece, Eastern Europe, etc., made necessary by post-war economic growth, radically altered the population. And the debate on Australian nationalism was very intense during that time. Australian historian Geoffrey Searle, for example, in 1967, in an essay called God's Own, Rica Unlimited, said, it has always been difficult to be unselfconsciously Australian. It was briefly possible, perhaps, in the 50s. After that, the US took over. And in the same year, in an essay called The New Australian, Geoffrey Blaney spoke of utopias, of the, of the future vaguely glimpsed at, or of the past more confidently envisioned. So post-war Australia became a fully fledged, in the minds of these, these historians and Herbert himself, a fully fledged bourgeois society. And it was against this profanity, this irresponsibility of this new bourgeois Australia that Herbert rallies, that he reacts to. And his protest forced him back to a point in time from his point of view when the Australia that he imagined was still possible, when the future was still open, not closed. And this meant the years between 1936 and 1942. And in between the time that elapsed between Capricornia and Poor Fellow My Country, I believe that Herbert came to feel and understand a tremendous sense of betrayal. And he felt betrayed by the promise of those years. And Cap Capricornia most poignantly comes to fruition during that time and begins with promise but ends rather, rather bleakly. But Herbert at least tried to mount a substantial critique of what the nation is built on and what it was built over. But there are things from which he can't escape because he is part of the nation. So in looking at his narratives, his two narratives more in detail, in depth, um, I'd, like to I'd like you to consider three major themes or three major tropes that come through them all. And one is blood, one is land, and one is belonging. And these mean different things to the different characters uh, in the book. Uh, Aboriginal characters or settler characters. So Herbert's two narratives that represent Aboriginal people, as you know, are over 20 years apart in terms of production and 30 years in, t in terms of publication. And the most vivid and striking thing for me about these two works as an Aboriginal reader is that they're asking the same question of the readers, and that's by the author's own admission, and raising the same problems by the author's own perception that um, he raised, in, um, raised earlier, but they are still unresolved and accentuated as time has passed, and the problems still are blood, land, and belonging. In Poor Fellow in My Country, he asked the same questions more explicitly, more forcefully, and more brutally. And to me also, his consciousness of Aboriginal presence and the future in the nation is probably one of the bleakest and pessimistic of all. But Herbert actually knew Aboriginal people personally, whereas some of the other authors that I have briefly referred to didn't or only briefly encountered them 
As literary critic Geoffrey Dutton noticed, Her Herbert grew up with the raw material of, of Capricornia. And as a, ch as a child and an adolescent, he grew up with full blood and um, mixed blood fringe dwellers. And I think it's the mixed blood fringe dwellers that are the real concern of his work and the motifs of blood and fringes um, are very prominent. So he worked on a Darwin newspaper as, and was a fettler in the rum jungle where he boasted of inheriting a harem of lubras from his predecessor. And among other jobs, between 1935, he was a superintendent of Aborigines in Darwin. And for 10 years, he struggled to write a book called Black Velvet. And with, with the help of his wife, this is the manuscript that became Capricornia in the early 1930s. And Angus and Robinson rejected the manuscript in 1934 because they found it too long, too depressing. And also, I think another reason could be because Herbert is so critical, so unflattering of Australian settlers. His, his representations of Aboriginal people are also problematic, but he is quite, uh, quite brutal, quite unflattering about the settlement as well, the idea of pioneers and his more, he, he, he does probe perhaps the cost of that to an extent. Eventually in 1938, um, W.J. Miles took on and published um, Capricornia um, in time to enter the sesquicentenary literary competition. And after he, Herbert won the prize for Capricornia, he wrote to Miles Franklin and said, when the news came, the news of the award, I was stunned for a moment, but only for a moment, and I promptly bought a case of beer and called on all the bums, bagmen, Greeks, chows, and yellow fellas about and got well and truly tanked. And so it is the yellow fellows, or these people, the people who are half and half in this limbo state, who occupy Herbert's consciousness because no matter how small or how large their blood quotient of Aboriginal blood may be, the blood is obvious and it impacts on their ability, one's ability to be truly black, but at the same time prevents one from being white or acceptable to whites either. And so there are two representations of um, dominant, prominent ab uh, of Aboriginality that span Herbert's novels. Um, there's the full-blood savage, most vividly read through the character of Bob or Bob Wirindiridi, and the mixed blood fringe dwellers in both societies, Norman, for example, in Capricornia, and Prindy in Poor Fellow, My Country. So Norman's mother, Norman in Capricornia, is a traditional woman of the Yabakambanga tribe, and his father is white. But in a brilliant visual image when Norman is born, the reader's first image of Norman is the colour of a cigarette stain on his father Mark's finger. And so the image of mixed blood children here, a stain on the white man's hand, has been quite an enduring one. Norman is, a, is an essentially flawed character because he dwells in two worlds, but he's unable to belong to neither. Um, he's sent to the South to be educated like a white man, and he emerges from this sojourn as elegant, intelligent and highly skilled. But on his return to Capricornia, which is the Northern Territory, he is just a yellow fella. And Norman's ambivalent um, identity 
impacts on his ability to form meaningful relationships with blacks or whites. And when he flees to the bush to avoid trouble, he hears the song of a golden beetle, the song of promise. Um, it's a song of promise. It's a song of return or the promise of return to something lost. But later, later when he is lost and stranded and he's unable to read the weather, he takes comfort in this song and he takes comfort in the full bloods he meets. One of the old men tell him, proper good country this one, plenty kangaroo, plenty buffalo, plenty bandicoot, plenty yam, plenty goose, plenty duck, plenty lubra, plenty corroboree, plenty fun, plenty everything, number one good country, more better you sit all the same with blackfella. Hey Norman. But Norman can't own his country. He can't listen to the he rejects the song of the golden beetle and he can't stay and accept the offer of this older man. And he dismisses the beetle's song and the lifestyle of the people he considers the full blood. So when dealing with whites, Norman repudiates his Aboriginal heritage. And in this way, he is for the settler imagination a true half caste. He's caught between the full bloods who accept him but who he disavows and rejects and the whites whom he emulates but who reject him. And this ambivalent situation leads to the tragedy at the end of the novel where Norman, where does, sorry, where does Norman belong in the nation? Even though he acquires a white man's legitimacy through his inheritance of a property, he has no children, no prospect of a partner who will accept him either black or white. He has no capacity to continue his line. And this inheritance is a tenuous one at least and most likely impossible to continue. A poor fellow my country opens with Prindy, the central character, described quite distinctly in Blood. And I'll just quote from our first introduction to Prindy. He could pass for any light-skinned breed even tan Caucasian, but his eyes were grey with curious intensity of expression, probably due to their being set in cavernous australoid orbits. His nose fleshed and curved in the mould of his savage ancestry. He could be anyone, a beautiful creature to any eye, but the most prejudiced. But in Australia, he was just a bull. So the plot of Poor Fellow My Country, as I see it, is essentially a custody battle for Prindy this young Aboriginal boy who's half settler, half Aboriginal, but neither. And it's a battle for the heart and mind of a young boy who could be many things to many people. But it is his Aboriginal blood, even though he's actually described as a quarter caste, that is the strongest point of his identification and leads ultimately to his demise. Every religious viewpoint, every cultural force, every family connection wants a piece of him, from Bob Wirrandiddy, who is the sinister representation of a clever man or a witch doctor, Dr Cobbardy, Faye McPhee, the journalist Kitty Windia, a classical musician. He is a genius, even to Rafika, the Holocaust survivor, to Monsignor Leonard, even to Lord Vesti, who is actually a representation of... Sorry, Lord Vesey, who is actually a representation of Lord Vesti from Victoria River Downs Pastoral Company at the time. Everybody wants to claim Prindy because he has so much potential. He's a genius. 
Yet Prindy grows from adolescence to manhood through a series of events, some of which are comic and many of which are tragic, tragic and violent. But it is his Aboriginal blood that dictates the course of his life. In one of his many letters, Herbert's letters, cited by one, his biographer, Francis de Gwyne, Herbert wrote, If white fellows don't confront and fully understand or make reconciliation with what has happened in the invasion of black Australia and the mucking up of the initiation and other processes, they will keep stuffing up, even if their hearts and minds are in the right place, as Jeremy's is. The rest of them will be spineless, cowardly bastards who have no understanding of the country that they live in. Yet his attitude to Aboriginal people is very is enigmatic to me because on the one hand he expresses what appears to be great concern but on the other hand his constructions, his representations of Aboriginal, Aboriginality have no hope. They're, they're hopeless. But then again, a lot of his characters are quite ill-fated. So what to make of that, I'm never quite sure. The more I read him, the more ill-fated I, I find his works. Um, okay. Sorry, I lost my The failed initiation scene that concludes Poor Fellow My Country the, um, is an example of such a hopeless future. The author never witnessed an initiation and admits to constructing the scene to make a point, but it is a very problematic one. The initiation procedure itself is cruel. The Aboriginal elders are, like automatons, devoid of human emotion and empathy. They are led by the Putakara. Led by the Putakara, they rape and brutally murder Prindy's fake pregnant fiancée, Savita, for intruding on a ceremony. Prindy then undergoes a trial by ordeal and is speared. Prindy's white grandfather, Jeremy, who wanted him to belong to both worlds and did not oppose the initiation, in fact encouraged it, is brutally killed in this scene. And in this scene, I'm trying to think back to some of the earlier comments that Herbert made about embracing or settlers embracing Aboriginal Australia or coming to terms with Aboriginal Australia. He used all those words. But then as he constructs such a brutal and fatalistic scene for all concerned, I'm wondering how his readers could have possibly done that at the time because I still find it hard to, um, to see how that could happen from such a scene. And I still find that scene really disturbing. In both narratives, the mixed-blood children, Toki, Prindy and their offspring, die in tragic, violent circumstances. And Herbert's contribution to Australian literature on race and the nation, for me, is that his discourse on race purports to disdain racial prejudice. But... His exploitation, on the other hand, of racial stereotyping for comic and melodramatic effects serves in some ways to feed the prejudices that he um, seeks to attack. 
Um, Felix Ma, who I once did a radio interview with on, on rare books, and um, Capricornia was one of the rare books that they featured on, the ABC, on an ABC 666 um, segment. And I once did an interview with Felix Ma, who is a musician and composer who wrote a praise for Poor Fellow, My Country, for the Baz Luhrmann film Australia. And Ma was a personal friend of Herbert's. Um, he knew him well. He read Poor Fellow, My Country several times. Um, and he saw Poor Fellow, My Country not only as the great Australian so- story, but as the great Australian song. And, I mean, certainly there is p- plenty of music in the novel, but for me it doesn't really synchronise and it can't come together. It's contesting rather than complementing. And for me, I think it's the great Australian angst. And um, I've dis- discussed this book with some of my Aboriginal colleagues. Um, and Poor Fellow in My Country, given that it does depict post-war Australia from the vantage point of the 60s, um, when we look back on the history of country and people from where I stand, these decades were for us times of heightened activism, radical change um, and reasonable optimism for our future. For example, Aboriginal scholar Cliff Wittago wrote in 1988 that the most important waves of social change filtering from abroad was the ascendant position and activism of, of the blacks and the swiftness of the media to report on such events. And Wittago went on to say that during the 60s, many educated Australians were conscious of the indications of change despite the conservative Menzies era. And he went on to argue that the prevailing mood abroad cannot be discounted as having, having, a prevent, having an effect on race relations at home. And some examples of that are the 1946 Aboriginal Stockman strike, the 1963 Yolngu petition, the 1966 Wave Hill walk-off, 1965 Freedom Rides, the 1967 referendum, and the re-establishment of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra in 1972 as evidence of this. And so I wonder sometimes whose country does Herbert see poor in the face of such resilience? But Herbert wrote a letter to his um, wife, Sadie Norman, and said, of course, Prindy is myself, just like Darcy, Jeremy and Clancy is, all my parts. And this is the key, I think, to interpreting the novel. Prindy's a symbol not just of Aboriginal people embodied through youth and unrealised potential for Herbert, but he's also a symbol of an Australia for Herbert that he sees passing with unrealised potential and that will die quite tragically like Prindy does, the death of a certain set of ideals, I guess. And so in the time that, that elapsed between when he wrote Poor Fellow and... Um, sorry, between when he wrote Capricornia and Poor Fellow, many things had happened for Aboriginal people, um, many positive developments. And the half-castes he depicts from my close reading in Herbert's narratives are symbolically half-people, half-formed beings, incomplete in their blackness and their whiteness. And here therein, I think, is a problem. Those who are neither black or white can't develop or progress in either of these narratives. And such figures have either been trapped in, a st- in static traditionalism that is a figment of his imagination, or they perish, like Toki, Prindy and Norman. 
And unfortunately, as the bleak endings of both narratives foreshadow, that the need, the need to be considered... So, sorry. Foreshadow that Herbert could not imagine a future for, for other Australians, either Aboriginal or not. And his works need to be considered, I think, not so much for their failure of prediction, as Aboriginal have, people have proved to be resilient in the field of literature, particularly, particularly so since the late 80s. But I think his works need to be considered for their ability to articulate a great Australian failure, probably the great Australian failure of race relations, race relations with Aboriginal people and with post-war immigrants like Rafika. And also, I ask too, when I'm reading his narratives, why, why is the advice of, or of Aboriginal characters like Prindy, who is a genius, disregarded? Why is the advice of his mother, who straddles two worlds quite successfully, disregarded too? Prindy is the only one for whom the whites around him appreciate. But this is problematic for Herbert, who by his own admission lives through the character of Darcy. And why is it Darcy who makes the decision that Prindy should be initiated into Aboriginal society, not, soci not the Aboriginal society itself, and particularly not his mother? And why does he seek to preserve him in the past that is in all other ways, as far as Herbert's concerned, gone? And why has he, gotten to, why has he put, sought to put him in a past that he goes to great lengths to portray as brutal and regressive. And I'm not saying it was like that, but that's how Herbert constructs it. So why does he want to put a boy with so much potential there? So, in concluding perhaps, I would like to perhaps consider why Herbert is so under-taught and under-discussed perhaps except in circles, except in specific literary circles. And I'd like to offer the following reasons. So as a literary figure, both in his own time and retrospectively, he was quite unconventional. And this may seem a contradiction, but, one of, but in the many great Australians of traditions of nonconformism, but I think this is a myth, like many other Australian myths, that Herbert questions, like the nation founded in peace, or the nation that's never experienced any civil unrest, or the nation that has never had to implement martial law. And he was shameless and open about his bad behaviour. In his own biography, for example, a disturbing element, he, he is, um, he's shameless about the relationships he has with Aboriginal women, particularly younger Aboriginal women. And he got up the nose of some of the great some of other his literary contemporaries at the time, such as Patrick White. Also, Herbert's works challenge some of the dearly held settler myths of foundation, and I think he comes closer to any other settler author, perhaps, to telling the, the truth or the literary truth about settler violence and the irresistible attraction that white men have for Aboriginal women. Miles Franklin said that black velvet was the skeleton in the colonial closet. But beyond making this statement, she did nothing, nor did any other literary person, one of her literary peers, to open that closet. Herbert did. And the initial manuscript that, as I mentioned, eventually became Capricornia, was originally called black velvet. 
And it's, you know, I wonder sometimes why he didn't keep that title. And I can only speculate that it was too explicit, explicit for any potential publisher at the time. And he had enough initial difficulty in securing a publisher for um, Capricornia anyway. So at the time of writing, too, Herbert was quite radical. He wrote in the 30s and he wrote in the late 60s. And he did name the Aboriginal people that he was writing about. He named the Yarrakabunga people in Capricornia and the Laperna people in Poor Fellow in My Country. And that was radical at the time compared to other settler authors who, whose representations of Aboriginal people were well known from the late 1920s onwards. For example, Catherine Pritchard's 1929 novel Coonadoo doesn't mention that she's depicting the Nala people in the northwest Kimberley region. They are just the Aborigines. Some decades later in the 50s, when Patrick White, Patrick White neither acknowledges the country of Dugold or Jackie Jackie in Voss, 1957, they're also just the Aborigines. Alf Dubbo in Riders in the Chariot is the Abo or the half-caste. And in A Fringe of Leaves, his female protagonist, Ellen, um, now on the place called Fraser Island, goes through an ordeal with a tribe. This later novel of White's is particularly interesting because in the course of writing Fringe of Leaves, White did actually speak to some of the descendants, briefly, of the Butchula people who rescued Eliza Fraser, on whom he loosely based his character, Ellen. And the Butchula people had a very different version of the story as a rescue um, not as a captive narrative. Um, but White chose to um, disregard that story or chose to ignore that story and, um, more, and because I think it was more important to construct, construct a generic um, representation of a tribe back in 19, 1836 and more poignant to this discussion is that White knew he was conversing, however briefly, with a people who belonged to a place, but he chose to ignore this and it was important to construct this generic representation and placelessness of a tribe of noble savages. But when Herbert names the people he writes of, they become at least geographically and historically connected to an Aboriginal country that the nation seeks to consume to say the least, and the dispossession of Aboriginal peoples becomes very uncomfortable at some points for the settler reader. And it's a lot easier, I think, to displace, as in the earlier narratives, generic Aborigines like Pritchard and White do, because they can be represented as wandering and drifting aimlessly through the pages of their narratives and across some newly acquired settler property. Um, and you could say that White and Pritchard are a product, moving on from this, of their times. And apart from Aboriginal people ourselves, there were very few settler people who were aware of or who recognised Aboriginal diversity. But when you consider, as I'm asking you to consider further, that David Malouf wrote Remembering Babylon in the 90s, post-invasion, post-bicentenary, and more particularly, he was writing as the Mabo claim was paying out, playing out and still didn't name the people whose country he was writing about. 
Um, this makes Herbert, when you consider that, this makes Herbert all the more radical for his time. Um, and this leads me perhaps to one of the final points on why, and I can't decide whether the book is forgotten or whether the book is repressed, whether it vacillates between, whether his works vacillate somewhere between the two. But these are just possible suggestions. But Herbert implicates himself within the settler violence and the cultural genocide. He does this in his own autobiography to a lesser extent in his um, fictional forms. But he doesn't stand outside or above the story as some of the other authors do. Or he doesn't use a, a stepladder approach. He doesn't exempt himself from the violent process that the nation has been built on. Whereas I think some of the other authors are in danger of doing that. So, Herbert. The stories articulate the great Australian failure of an imagination of a nation, Australia, caught somewhere in the promise of a golden age of an interwar Australia, especially in the 1940s and 30s and 40s. That was Herbert's golden age. And he feels betrayed and he writes of the realism of failure. But for who? Who is betrayed by the nation? What is the nation? And Poor Fellow in My Country is written, I believe, on the cusp of the great failure of the imagination, the great failure of ideals for Herbert and people like Herbert, that particular settler audience that he was writing for and that he is a part of, and he feels the betrayal of ideals and broken promises. More recent books that are also positioned on such cusps are, although they've won some of the nation's most prestigious awards, like the Miles Franklin Award, are also positioned on the cusp of failures or difficult changes, and they're also underread as well. So I offer that perhaps by way of explanation, that these books capture an important sense of change, disappointment, failure. Another book like that is Alexis Wright's book, Carpentaria, which um, is written on the cusp of the disappointment of the failed promise of reconciliation and the failed promise of an apology as it was written at the time. And it's also greatly underread, even though it's a Miles Franklin winner. So Herbert is betrayed by his ideals and his Aboriginal people are betrayed by a fate, a destiny, by events that they can't escape because he can't imagine Aboriginal people outside of a past that is a very static dream time. And in the great Australian passion or tradition to aspire to great things, there's the great Australian emptiness, the great Australian silence, Herbert's books being described as the great Australian classic. It's also the great Australian lament, the great Australian failure of isolation and utopia and of a national socialist utopia with a small, relatively homogenous population. And Herbert's dreams are in tatters. And this is represented through the characters of Prindy, Norman and Toki. A dream. Herbert is stuck in a dream. His Aboriginal characters are stuck in a dream time. A timeless place removed from historical coordinates. And, he's, and Herbert is trapped in a historical moment. A time warp. Like the song of the, the, gold, the, song of the golden beetle. 
in Capricornia that Norman hears and could hold so much promise, this brief song. But it goes silent and Norman fails to embrace it. And Herbert sees that, and I see that as very symbolic, that golden beetle that Herbert constructs there. It's very symbolic of what he sees as the end of a golden age for, for an Australia that he believed in. And he rages very much against this death, particularly in Poor Fellow, My Country, and the promise of a nation. Um, made all the more bitter, I think, because he rages against an unfulfilled promise, something that he can only imagine, um, of ideals not brought to fruition, of half-formed dreams that will never come to fruition, never develop, a bit like the half-formed people in his narratives that will never um, fully come to their potential. And so he was not a person of moderation. He was one of great extremes, of peaks and troughs, of rises and falls. And perhaps, I think, didn't appreciate that the decline of one thing or the death of one dream might just be the awakening of another. Thank you.